This is Conversations with the President, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Hi, I'm Stephen Rothstein, President of the Canadian Bar Association. My guest in this episode of Conversations with the President is Marc-André Blanchard. Marc-André is the Executive Vice President and Head of CDPQ Global. He was the Ambassador and Permanent Representative of Canada to the United Nations from 2016 to 2020. Throughout his career, Marc-André has always been a champion for positive, thoughtful change. At his firm, McCarthy Tetro, it was gender equality. At the United Nations, it was about removing silos and improving interdepartmental communication and coordination. In his current role at CDPQ, he revolutionized the way we think about government and private industry cooperating and showing that what was once unthinkable is now doable. He once referred to Canada in the Global Mail as a country that can get things done. On behalf of the CBA, I'm pleased to welcome a man who can get things done both on the local and the global scale. So let me first uh, welcome you, Marc-André, to uh, my Conversations with the President podcast. Bonjour, Stephen. What a pleasure to be here with you and to have this discussion and this conversation and also be engaged with the members of the CBA, an organization I'm very fond of. Thank you. So uh, you've had an amazing career. I, I quickly kind of gave a very quick summary of it, but, uh, you know, there's a lot to, to compact. One of the things that I'm always fascinated is, is how you went from being a law student to leading one of Canada's largest law firms to, of course, being a diplomat at the UN and now your work in global sustainability. Uh, how did that all happen? Um, was it planned? And uh, were there things uh, you would have done differently now in hindsight? You know, it's all about bringing people together, uh, whether it's in a law firm or in, at the UN or in investment. You know, it's about building the trust amongst people. So before building trust, you need to develop relationship and then you build trust and then you do things together and then you connect the dots. You know, when people ask me, you know, you've had three different careers or four different careers, if you look at litigation and then law firm management and then diplomacy and now investment. And I say, well, you know what? There's a continuum throughout. You know, the, the job is, yes, it deals with different things. It's different being a litigator than being an investor or being a diplomat or being a law firm leader. But it's all about building a relationship and having the trust of people you work with and to develop things. I used to say to lawyers at McCarthy's, yes, we're in the legal business of, you know, in the business of providing legal opinions, but there's a lot of good lawyers in Canada that can give good legal opinions. What is the difference between an ordinary lawyer and a great lawyer is actually someone who has a relationship with the client, knows very well what the client is trying to achieve and actually can apply the legal principle and make things happen. I used to say to my lawyers, to the lawyers that are working with us, you're in the legal opinion business, but you're also in the relationship business. And it's the same thing in diplomacy. Try to, you know, develop a consensus without relationship. There's no trust. It's impossible to do. I, I used to say to lawyers in my law firm, try to actually overcome a mistake you've made without the relationship or the trust of your client. And it's the same thing in investment. 
now it, it, there's a lot of capital in investment. The problem is not that there is a scarcity of capital in many corners of the world and for many areas where we would like to have capital better aligned with sustainable development. It's actually a lack of bankable projects. Well, how do you develop bankable projects? It's actually by building relationship, by building platform, by building the trust amongst the members of that platform and actually developing opportunities for everyone. So I would say this has been the continuum throughout my career. You know, developing relationship, developing trust, trying to make things happen. And I think it's important, whatever the career you're choosing, I think those things are, are the same in many, many areas. I've been taking notes as you're speaking. Um, so I, I am quite interested, and I know our listeners are quite interested in your experience working in the UN. It was obviously, I don't, I don't know if there's ever a, a quiet time, but it was a particularly active time. And so I guess my first question just as when you made the transition from from obviously your role at McCarthy's to the UN, what was the, I know you said relationships and you talked about that, but what was your biggest learning curve? Well, it's going to sound very, uh, in some ways, very cheesy, but I'll tell you one thing. The first thing that strikes you when you're sitting in that seat is uh, I always say that uh, every Canadian should be sitting in that seat for a, one day in their life. They would realize actually how the world looks at Canada and the difference that Canada can make in the world. This is what I realized upon entering the UN after a few weeks, a few months of talking to my colleagues is there was a lot of expectation towards Canada. The other thing that struck me when I was president of the Peacebuilding Commission and before that I was a very active member of all sorts of peace-building initiatives throughout the UN. What makes Canada so strong as a society, the difference between Canada and other countries that are not as successful, I found that it actually lies a lot in the strength of our own institution, in the strength of the rule of law first, but also our institutions. Yes, our national institutions, our provincial institutions, but also the thousands of small local institutions that we have throughout the countries, whether it's about cooperatives for fishing, or it's about Desjardins in Quebec, or savings and loans in Saskatchewan, or any kind of farmers organization, or women and minorities organization. It's about CDPQ and our institutional investors in the country. It's about our banks. It's about all sorts, all of our institutions, our media, our universities. This is a very, very big strength of Canada, and this is something that we need. You know, for me, when you look at the current world situation, at the current challenges that we have as what we see coming in coming years, these things are so important and so fundamental for our own future and for our relevance in the world and actually for the well-being of our children. I totally agree with what you're saying. And uh, I mean, it's as a Canadian, it makes me proud that, that our country is, is held in such esteem in the UN and obviously through our representatives such as yourself are obviously able to contribute to you know, the global discourse, uh, which, which I guess leads me to two questions. I guess my first one is, in your time there, what would you say, what do you feel was your greatest accomplishment? What, uh, I mean, maybe you can't just say one, but if you, could, if you could narrow it down to one, maybe two. I arrived at the UN 
and the secretary general, uh, you know, you when you arrive as an ambassador to the UN, you go and present your credentials to the secretary general. And it's time to actually have a first discussion with the secretary general of the United Nations. At the time, it was Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. And I, I remember I said to Secretary General, listen, I am, uh, as, as Prime Minister Trudeau often says when he's on the world stage, you know, we're Canada and we're here to help. I said, what can I do? And he says, you know, Ambassador Blanchard, you have a different background than most ambassadors. You come with a long experience in the private sector. He said, we just actually agreed upon the Paris Accord and also upon the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs. And he said, you know, we need help to finance all of this. And here at the UN, the focus so far has been on overseas development assistance, public finance finance that would come from donor countries. But he said, you know, when you add all of the donor countries of the world, this is $150 billion a year. We need, some people say, between 2 and $3 trillion of investment a year in infrastructure around the world. If you want to achieve the SDGs in their fullest, in an holistic way, you need between five and seven trillion dollars. So that's between 5,000 and 7,000 billion dollars. But he said still, in, at the UN, the focus is on the 150 billion. He said, if you can help us change the discussion at the UN and with governments on the planet, that actually the money will come from, yes, maybe in some cases it will be governments, donor governments, will be multilateral development banks, it will be bilateral development financial institution, but most of the money will have to come from the private sector. And he said, here, nobody talks about the private sector. And he said, if you could help us change that. So if you ask me, the main accomplishment I did is when I left, that was uh, in the summer of 2020. We just had started at the time the pandemic. For the first time during that summer, we had meetings at the UN of the finance ministers to discuss that crisis. And it was the first time that you would have finance ministers at the UN because the crisis, the pandemic, was about lives and livelihood. So that was one thing. But then it was also the year before, we did a full summit. I was co-chair of a full summit on the role of the private sector on financing sustainable development. And that was done in the prime time of the opening session of the General Assembly in 2019. And that was marking the fact that actually it took me four years and all of us, not me personally, but all of us. And what I did was, it's the same thing as I said, it's about relationship and building trust and actually building groups of people that can actually help you change the world, if I may say so. You know, I started a group with Jamaica, with the, the ambassador from Jamaica. So it was one ambassador from the North, myself, and one ambassador from the South, the ambassador of Jamaica. 
we started what is called a group of friends. And that had a snowball effect. We had 65 members. And for four years, we really worked at it and actually changed the way we talk about development at the UN. And it's now way more inclusive to the fact that actually during the pandemic, it was really about, uh, you know, it brought all aspects of, uh, you know, of source of finance, sources of financing. And now for climate, it's, uh, it's the same thing. Everybody now recognizes that, you know, we need other sources of financing than public financing, because if not, we won't get anywhere. And this is, I would say, it's the main contribution that I made. There's so much I want to talk to you about, so I'm going to kind of segue to a different topic because I could use the whole time on our podcast to talk about what's going on at the UN currently or previously when you sat in that chair. Um, I know you you mentioned that you kind of completed your term at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, you know, 2020 was uh, you know too long years ago. And I know you recently spoke about how uh, the pandemic has caused an overall acceleration of the processes and developments in the global economy. I'm wondering, obviously, you have a unique lens on this. Um, if I can ask you a narrow question, which is kind of how has the pandemic uh, and this acceleration uh, impacted the legal profession and where do you see where do you see that going? Well, I think there are two big for the legal profession in this, I think that if you look at the um, acceleration for the digital shift that has been underway throughout the, the pandemic, just in terms of proceedings in courts throughout the country, and you're a better place than I am to judge that, but from the outside, what I've seen, we've done in two years uh, what uh, could have taken many more years otherwise. So that's been a very positive development in a very difficult situation, going to a more digital world in the legal profession. The other part where I think the jury is still out and I'm concerned about it a little bit is the issue of the hybrid model. Will it enhance diversity or be an obstacle to diversity? You know, the legal profession is continuing to have its difficulty for diversity, um, gender diversity, and other sorts of diversities as well. And I'm wondering if the hybrid model will be helpful or will slow the progress that should be made in the legal world. And the same thing could apply in the investment world as well, where I am now. To me, that's a, a yellow light in my dashboard make sure that this hybrid model is inclusive rather than actually exclusive or source of exclusion. Is there a way, is there things that law firms or people in the legal profession could be doing to address some of the issues that you speak about? Well, I'm looking at what we do at CDPQ. And to me, it's about making sure that when we're in the office, we use the time in the office to do what we cannot do digitally to make sure that we have very meaningful meetings and we have inclusive meetings where everybody's around the table and is participating. Back to the first point that I've made, that it's a lot about relationship and building trust. And it, this is more difficult in the digital world than it is in a face-to-face -face world. And, um, well, <laughs> maybe I'm, there's a generation bias here on my part. So I invite all law firms to be very vigilant with this and to really make sure that it's all about opportunities, you know, 
making sure that people have opportunities to grow and to be themselves and to develop their skills, whether you're in in-house or in a law firm or in government, I think the same thing applies. For us in the investment world and in, as an institutional investors, there's a lot of value in exchanging and comparing notes and sharing experiences and all of that. And so having a lot of uh, conversations around the coffee machine are very important in many areas or many industries. And the legal industry is one of them. So along, along, thank you for that. Along the, uh, along that lines, I didn't think that anybody could have foreseen the pandemic and maybe, uh, the crisis in, in Ukraine could have been foreseen for some time, but, but no, I don't think anyone could have foreseen the level that we've gotten to. I, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what, uh, w- you know, what's the next thing that nobody expects? What is on the horizon that, you know, people should be thinking about now? I I think it's uh, there are financial risks, of course, that will remain. But the biggest risks, in a way, are are not financial. Uh, when you look at it, even for investors like us, it's about when you look at it. We need to be better at planning or at working on prevention. I'll give you one example. Microbiological resistance is a topic that received very, very little attention. Very little money is invested either from the public or private sector to find new antimicrobiotics that will be effective. It's, it's a very, it's a significant risk when you look at it. There's a lot, there's way more resistance in many, many parts of the world to a lot of, of diseases or infections that we didn't see before. That's one example. I think we, we need to pay attention about migration issue. We saw migration. In Syria, at that time, you had 5 million people who who left Syria to go to the neighboring countries, and that had a very big impact in Europe. And some say it had a huge impact on actually getting the UK out of the European Union. And now you have the migration out of Ukraine, also in neighboring countries. I think the scale of migration that we've seen so far it could be very small compared to the scale of migration we could see in the future because the demography of many parts of Africa and the impact of, of climate change all over the planet. You know, I saw some islands in the Pacific, some small islands, small populations, but actually were actually buying lands in other, on other islands to actually transfer or other places in the world to transfer their people. I saw some examples in Fiji where you had entire villages who for all of their lives, you know, uh, for uh, centuries have been fishing uh, as a main activity. And now we're taken from, uh, from the coast to the inland to actually ensure that they would be able to survive. So we're facing that. It's real. And then you get into larger countries like Bangladesh and Indonesia where the impact of climate change could be significant 
and I haven't talked about the impact of climate change in on our own continent and the impact it could have on major cities like uh, on the east coast of the United States. We need to we need to be better at looking at at the prevention better. That to me is important. And the other part where I'm very back to the, the strength of our own country and the province of Quebec and Canada and all of the provinces in Canada and the territories, it's actually the strength of our institutions. And I'm saying we need to keep working at those institutions. Those institutions are key to our societies and we need to make sure that they continue to be very solid and thrive. And lawyers have a very big role to play in this. The legal profession has a very big role to play in this. And I think we we need to be very engaged. I invite the members of the CBA to be very engaged uh, to making sure that our institution is as healthy as possible. That doesn't mean there's a strong debate. And yes, there could be a little bit of pluralization and all of that. But at the end of the day, it's very important to keep our institution as inclusive as possible. We need to ensure dialogue is, is going on and that diversity and that we actually look really and be effective at delivering what is needed to fight uh, some of the biggest issues we're facing as a society. Some of them are, you know, like, you know, we talk about climate change, inequalities, and I'm not trying to do any, make any politics here, regardless of where we stand on these issues. We need to engage, be part of the discussion, the debate, be part of the solution, and bring whatever we can to the table to actually go in the right direction. I don't think that's a political statement. I think it's about it being an engaged citizen and being involved in the issues of our time. And climate change is clearly an issue of our time, among the other things that, that you spoke about. Uh, I guess I had one final question, I'm, uh, uh, which is kind of, it, it, it's a bit different than what we've talked about previously, but, but I would like your perspective or your advice for some of our listeners. One of the things that I've been talking a lot about during my presidency is the importance of lawyers giving back to their communities in the area of volunteerism. You know, you talked about your own, your own role. You went from private, uh, the private sector and to obviously representing Canada, uh, you know, in the public sector. But I'm just wondering, as far as volunteerism, you know, what your thoughts are as far as how lawyers, how lawyers can get involved in their communities and doesn't have to be through elected office. I guess it's not volunteerism, but that's public engagement, but, um, uh, or the UN, but, but just, uh, you know, what roles you see lawyers playing in the area of volunteerism that can obviously, uh, be helpful to the society in which they live in. I actually, I'm a believer that whatever, you know, we're each, each of us are very different from each other, and that's a very good thing. And I, I often said to people, get engaged, whether it's the, the soccer team of your children or financial institution like Desjardins at the community level or board of a, of a nonprofit or even the operations of a nonprofit that fits your aspirations and your, that touches a chord with you. I just think it's important to be engaged and to be a, an active member of our society. And I think lawyers have more to bring to the table than many, many other periods before. Look at the big issues we need to deal with. There's a lot of governance issues all over. There's a lot of issues regarding privacy. 
There's a lot of issues regarding all sorts of things where lawyers can bring a very interesting point of view. I'm a big fan of the legal academic background. When I was at the UN, I had members of my team, of my diplomatic team that were lawyers and some were not, obviously not lawyers, but, and, and the lawyers, some were acting as in the legal capacity and some of them were just diplomats focusing on, on development issues or, uh, or security issues or social issues or whatever was their specialties. I really thought that lawyers had a rigor to bring to the table, a depth of thought, the way that it was structured. Maybe because I'm a lawyer, I appreciate it even more. But I thought it was a very, very solid academic background. And I think it's the same thing for, for society. You know, we will need to be doing things so differently than we've had before. And I think there are many opportunities for that. And we all need to create partnerships that will allow this to be possible. I'll give you some example at CDPQ. You know, CDPQ is an institutional investor, but we have very deep values in ESG that are enshrined in us. Like we've been a leader in the fight against climate change for many years now. We came out the first institutional investor, I think, in North America with a climate policy in 2017. We were amongst the first to include the ESG criteria or thinking in our investments. We've been doing that for close to 20 years now. We see now that, as I said, capital is not scarce. What is more scarce are projects and projects that actually could give us a good equation of risk and returns. And we found that actually to do what we need to be doing, with the way that we look at the world, the need to fight, for example, for climate change. If I was the other day with uh, John Kerry, the special uh, envoy of the president of the United States on climate, he was saying that we need to invest six times more than we do currently in the renewables to meet the objectives that we have for, for 2030. He said that we need to invest, I think it's between 25 and 30 times more in actually in electric vehicle than we are doing currently. We need to do things differently because the speed at which we act is not fast enough. And not only do we have the climate change issue that we're facing, but we have other issues like the pandemic that we are, uh, we've been facing for two years. We have the security issue we are now facing with the invasion, you know, the, this war from Russia to Ukraine. So, and that's now what is waiting for us tomorrow. We don't know. We just know that we live in a world where it will be more multipolar. We will have more less certainty and where we look at, the, you know, one of the consequences are the fact that we're now talking more about nearshoring and friendshoring and that supply chains will be moving. This represents challenges, but they all represent opportunities. And my point is, actually, we need to look at them with, actually, I think, as an opportunity. But we also need to recognize that the old ways of doing things, to say a cliche, will not work as well in the future. And I believe that what we need is 
actually capital that is slightly better aligned with sustainable development. And for that to happen, we need actually engagement of, in all sorts of ways in partnerships that were unthinkable uh, just a few years ago that are now necessary. And that will take all of us, including lawyers, to actually think about how to make these things work. Although maybe five years ago, we never thought that they could work or that they could be done or achieved. Well, thank you for that. I was going to ask you some climate change questions. So we got there. We got there. So that's 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 great. And I really wanted to thank you for uh, the great information that you've, uh, you've you've discussed with me today and with our listeners on uh, on the conversations with the president podcast. Um, and I just wanted to thank you uh, uh, for your support of the CBA, but also for your role in representing Canada at the UN and other things over the years. So, thank you very much. It was a pleasure meeting you uh, on the podcast. And uh, you know, we talk about the hybrid model. We did this virtually. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to meet in person one of these days in in the near future. Thank you. And the pleasure was mine. Thank you very much. This is Conversations with the President, presented by the Canadian Bar Association.